Well, let's turn to God's Word again, this time to Exodus chapter 20 and verses 5 and 6. Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, and it's on page 73 if you're using the church Bible. We are continuing uh, to work our way through the book of Exodus, and in particular at the moment through the Ten Commandments. And we began looking this morning at this second commandment that's recorded here in Exodus 20, verse 4. And uh, we want to just read again uh, these three verses uh, of the second commandment. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The larger catechism gives us some very helpful advice and counsel about how to interpret the Ten Commandments. And one of the principles that it gives us is that we are to pay particular attention to the reasons that are annexed to some of the commandments. Not all of the commandments have reasons attached to them, but some of them do. And where they are there, we are to pay close, particular attention to them. And in the second commandment, God gives us two powerful reasons, one negative and one positive, why we shouldn't commit idolatry. And we've just read them there in verses 5 and 6. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. There's the negative reason. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's the positive reason. Now at first glance, and perhaps not just at first glance, maybe even after quite a bit of thought, these verses may strike us as strange, very strange. Verse 5 seems harsh and cruel and vengeful and unjust, doesn't it? It sounds like some nightmarish curse. This is the sort of thing that films are made about. Horror stories, I guess, are made about. That bad things are happening to me today because some ancestor in the distant past, a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, committed some awful sin, and I am now being punished for it. That's how it sounds, isn't it? And yet all that we know about God should warn us against that kind of idea. Whatever this text means, and 
it obviously means something, but whatever it means, it can't mean that. John Calvin says in commenting on this, nothing is more unreasonable than for the innocent and the guilty to be involved in the same punishment. And then we need to make sure that we interpret difficult sayings by the clear sayings of Scripture. And there are other places in the Bible where it is crystal clear that individuals are responsible for their own sin. In Ezekiel chapter 18, for example, this is written into the law of Israel. The fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for their own sin. That's quoting from Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. So, Whatever this passage means, it can't mean, it does not mean that God punishes innocent children for the sins that their fathers or their grandfathers or their great-grandfathers committed long ago. God tells us explicitly that he does not do that. There are a number of preliminary points that we should make uh, as we approach this text that will help us Uh, as we seek to understand it. First of all, uh, this phrase three uh, and four generations is best understood as a reference to an extended family that is all alive at the same time. It it perhaps reads uh, more naturally to us as three or four generations coming after one another chronologically. But we need to remember that in the culture of the Bible, people married very young, at the age of 12 or 13 or 14. They would set up home close to their parents, and their parents would play a much, their grandparents then, would play a much greater role in the lives of their children and their grandchildren. And so you could easily have three or four generations in the same family living close together, with the oldest in the family acting as the head of the family. And so parents really did influence the third and fourth generation in a way that simply doesn't happen in our own day. And then uh, this translation, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers or visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, that's perhaps not the best translation or at least not the best interpretation. Perhaps the best way to read it here is visiting the consequences of the father's iniquity upon the children. Visiting the consequences of the father's sins upon the children. God is warning the people that if they sin, that sin will have serious consequences, not just for themselves, but for those who are closest to them. We are much more individualistic, aren't we, than the Israelites were. And yet, we, we know ourselves, don't we, just how the sins of one generation, the faults, the mistakes, the foolishness of one generation can affect the next. Uh, that might be on the large scale, um, 
you see that at the moment in the, in the whole obsession that there is with achieving net zero uh, when it comes to pollution uh, and emissions targets. Uh, we must not uh, leave this terrible, horrible legacy for our children. Uh, so there's a lot of talk about this right at this time. Or on the small scale, the, the, the sins of one generation affects the next. A mother who abuses drugs damages her unborn baby. The child suffers the consequences of the mother's sin. And that, I think, is how we should understand this verse. Our sins have wider consequences. They affect more than just ourselves. And then uh, notice, too, that according to verse 5, the third and fourth generations are not innocent. We're not talking here about God punishing innocent children. How are they described? The third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So we're talking here about children who, like their parents and like their grandparents and like their great-grandparents, have no love for God. And they're carrying on this hideous family tradition of God-hating. And then uh, one final thing just to note is that we must be careful uh, as we read these verses that we don't lose perspective because the emphasis here falls on verse 6, not on verse 5. There is far more grace than there is judgment here, and we'll come back to this uh, later on, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. But so many people stall at verse 5, and they get hung up there, uh, and they don't go on and, and read everything that God says here uh, in this reason that's annexed to the second commandment. So with those few preliminary remarks out of the way, let me then say three main things uh, about this commandment or about this reason that's annexed to the second commandment. And in the interests of full disclosure, I uh, need to say that the headings, uh, not the content, but the headings this evening are uh, from our previous pastor, uh, Pastor Donnelly. I couldn't do any better than the ones that he had for uh, this subject. So the first thing that we see here is a reminder of parental responsibility. A reminder of parental responsibility. Because these verses remind us of a solemn and simple truth. And that is that parents have a huge, huge influence over their children for good or for ill. We don't just pass on our DNA. We don't just pass on our appearance and our mannerisms. We influence our children in so many ways. Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. And that proverb, of course, is a two-edged sword, isn't it? Start a child off well in life, and they will walk li likely walk in right paths all their life. 
start a child off badly, and it's going to be very hard to change those ways when the child is older. And we should note that this, uh, although it applies particularly to parents, this is not just for parents. Uh, This is for all those who have influence of any kind uh, over the next generation. But of course, it is parents who have the most influence on the training of children. Children develop along the lines within the parameters that their parents set for them. For the first four years plus of a child's life, the parents are the sole authority. There really isn't any other verse, uh, any other voice before children go out to school. If they do go out to school, uh, there's no other voice of authority in their life. There's no other source of wisdom or knowledge. Uh, the, The parents could tell their children anything. And some parents do tell their children anything, knowing that it will be believed. And whatever children see at home, Whatever it is that they see at home, that for them is normal. And that's why good habits of worship and daily prayer and Bible reading and Sabbath keeping and things like that, it's so important that those habits are formed at that early stage, right from the beginning. And even after children do go out to school, the dominant voice of instruction is still their parents. They'll come home, hopefully, and and they run everything that they hear at school, whether from their friends or from their teachers. They'll run it all past mom and dad. Billy so-and-so says, this is is that right? Mrs. so-and-so says, this is, is that what we believe? Is that right? It's the parents who have the major responsibility for influencing their children. In thousands, tens of thousands, millions of ways, parents influence their children. And the frightening thing is that we do this without even trying to, in ways that we don't even realize that we are influencing them. We set an example to our children even when we're not trying to set an example, even when we don't think that we're setting an example. My wife, you're all going to be checking this out later to make sure that that this is true. But my wife holds her Psalter in her left hand. She's not left-handed, but she holds her Psalter in her left hand because she watched her mom holding her Psalter in her left hand. And that's why she decided. It wasn't that uh, Mrs. Donnelly sat Ruth down and said, now this is is the way we hold a Psalter in our family. it, It was completely subliminal, completely unconscious. Parents set the tone of their children's life. We dictate the atmosphere that our children breathe. Is it a godly atmosphere? Is it a clean, pure atmosphere? We guide and we influence children enormously. We just do. Our choices, our lifestyle, the people that we are, All of those things teach our children all that we are and all that we do and all that we say. We are educating them for better or for worse. 
And all of us that have any kind of influence over children, and and that means all of us here, because to some extent we all do, we need to ask ourselves, am I poisoning or am I blessing the coming generations? Even today, parental influence does extend to several generations. Things get passed on. Um, Maybe that's for sentimental reasons. We do things the way we saw our parents do them. Uh, Maybe that's the only reason for doing them that way. We like to pass things on to the next generation. Maybe it's uh, a house, uh, an inheritance, an heirloom. But what matters more than anything is that we are passing on wholesome, holy behavior and attitudes. We need to teach our children the things that really matter. And so this commandment, this reason that's annexed to the second commandment is a warning to parents that their actions, if they break this commandment, are going to hurt more than just themselves. Of course, they will hurt themselves. They will damage themselves if they sin. But they're going to do more than that. They're going to be setting a pattern that their family may follow. They could be leading their own children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren into serious sin. Your actions could be helping to hurt and damage the next generation. I remember years ago, and it shows just how effective these adverts were that I can still remember it, but uh, it was uh, an advert where it showed a mother and her little girl And the mother was leading the little girl by the hand into a monstrous car crusher, uh, one of these machines that, that, you know, uh, flattens the car and puts it into a cube so that it can be shipped off as scrap to somewhere else in the world. Uh, And this mother was taking her little darling into this horrible, dangerous, lethal machine. And the purpose of the advert was don't let your children sit in the car without their seatbelt on. If you let your child travel in the car without a seatbelt, this is effectively what you're doing. It's like taking them by the hand into a machine that's going to mangle them and destroy them. And yet how many parents are using this immense influence that they have to hurt their children, spiritually speaking? They would never, ever let their children travel in the car without a seatbelt. They would never put them in harm's way. And yet, they're doing all kinds of things that are seriously damaging their children's spiritual health. We're so careful to use our influence to get our children to play an instrument, or to speak well or to be polite and well-mannered, or to study hard, or to play sport, to make them accomplished. And yet, perhaps, we have very, very little concern for eternal spiritual matters that are more important, far more important, infinitely more important than anything else. It's a reminder of parental responsibility. Then secondly, uh, it is a rebuke of parental disobedience. 
It's a rebuke of parental disobedience. This verse is a severe rebuke to us for any ways that we may have led children into sin. Our sins don't just harm ourselves. They harm those who look to us for guidance and for an example. And I wonder how you and I have been guilty of leading the next generation into sin. And particularly here in the second commandment, the focus is on the whole area of how we worship Remember, that's what the second commandment is about. We saw that this morning. The first commandment is about who we worship. The second commandment is about how we worship. What are we teaching the next generation about the worship of God? When we don't come to the worship services of the church, or when we come to some of them, or we're at sporadic in our attendance? What are we teaching our children? What message are we preaching to them about the importance of the worship of God? We're telling them that it doesn't really matter. It's not something that is of first importance. There are some things sometimes that are more important than the worship of God. We're telling our children perhaps that sometimes a nice family day at the beach is more important or that visiting friends is more important or that making the Sabbath dinner is more important or watching television or just having a snooze is more important or perhaps working is more important than the worship of God. And so... The next generation grows up thinking that the worship of God isn't all that important. It's a little religious routine that it's good to do if there's nothing else that's more pressing, if it's convenient, if there's not something more interesting or more enjoyable, if you don't have a better offer, then by all means the worship of God is something to consider. No, our children need to grow up Understanding that the public worship of God is the very first priority in our lives and that nothing except serious illness or emergency will ever keep us away from public worship. That's the message that we need to preach to our children, not just with our lips, but by our example. If we don't keep family worship in our homes, as we have vowed to do at the baptism of our children. What does that teach our children about the importance of keeping vows that we make to the Lord? Perhaps our children here at a baptism, the parents promising that they're going to keep family worship in their home, that they're going to do all of these things. And maybe your children say to you afterwards, were, were, were the vows different when I was baptized? Mommy, Daddy, why is it, did you not have to promise to do those things? What are we going to say to our children? You can swear solemn vows, but you don't really have to keep them if you don't want to, if it doesn't suit 
What does that teach them about vows? If we openly criticize ministers and elders of the church in front of our children, what are we teaching them? How are we training them about showing respect for and submitting to those who are in authority over us in the Lord? Every day we're teaching our children about marriage. Marriage preparation is not a little four-week course that the minister does uh, in the months leading up to a couple getting married. Marriage preparation is something that parents are doing right from the very beginning of their child's lives. What are we teaching our children about marriage? If we're constantly arguing and snarling at each other in front of the children, if we rarely show affection, if we're always sniping at one another, all we're doing is storing up trouble for future generations. Where will children learn about true, loving, Christian marriage if they don't see it in their parents' marriage? What are we teaching our children about our attitude to money? If our children see that their parents are greedy and grasping and covetous and materialistic, what chance do they have of becoming cheerful, generous givers? In a thousand ways, every day of our lives, we are training up the next generation. It's a rebuke of parental disobedience. Now, to be sure, if our, if our children commit these sins, if they do these things, if they reproduce these sins themselves that they have seen in us, they will be guilty. They, they will be sinners. They will be responsible for their actions. They're sinners just like their parents were. This, this verse talks about the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. They will be God-haters just like their parents were. But we as parents will share some of the blame. We will be accountable because we help them on their way. We started them off. We nurtured those sinful attitudes in them. We encouraged them. We instructed them by our example, if not by our words. We taught them to love money more than God, to love ease and pleasure more than God. We showed them that God and His will don't really matter if it's not convenient. We exemplified lives of shallowness to our children. What an awful thing it will be on the day of judgment to see a child going to hell because we didn't love them enough to show them the right way. Some of the Lord's harshest words are for those who cause the next generation to stumble. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be far better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's a sobering rebuke, isn't it, of parental disobedience. And it's not just for parents. 
This is true for all of us whose lives impact children in any way. It's a rebuke for Sabbath school teachers and CY leaders. For all of us as members of a congregation, we all set an example of one sort or another to the children in this church. We vow when we witness the baptism of one of our covenant children. We take a vow as a congregation that we're going to set an example of holiness, not just with our words, but with our actions as well. Friends, this rebuke ought to drive each one of us to examine our lives and pray that there might be nothing that would tempt or lead a child into sin. We should pray every day. We need to pray every day that none of us would put a stumbling block in a child's way. A reminder of parental responsibility, a rebuke of parental disobedience, and then in verse 6, a reassurance for parental faithfulness. A reassurance for parental faithfulness. I'm sure you're ready for this uh, by now. Uh, All that we've thought about so far is terrifying. There's no way to get around that. Uh, we, We need to feel the force of it. It is sobering. It is humbling. It is terrible. But it's not where the emphasis falls, is it? Because verse 5 is just the background, the setting, the frame for verse 6. Don't commit idolatry because of the harmful effects that it will have on the next generations. But God especially wants us to focus on the positive reason for obeying his commandments. It's because they bring health and life and joy. Did you notice how completely out of proportion the numbers are in verse 5 and verse 6? In verse 5, three or four generations. In verse 6, thousands of generations, or to the thousandth generation. Even if it is just the thousandth generation, that's still a lot more than the third or fourth generation. We're not meant to get hung up on verse 5. We're meant to hasten on to verse 6 so that we can wonder and marvel and rejoice and praise. Because in verse 6, God announces that his usual pattern is blessing upon families who love him. Those who turn away from him, those who hate him, yes, they will cause havoc for three or four generations. But those who love God and those who keep his commandments, they will experience blessing and love and mercy to a thousand generations. Now, this is not an unconditional promise any more than verse 5 is an unconditional threat. Just as the pattern of sin can be broken in verse 5, so the pattern of blessing can be broken in verse 6. Just because parents are godly does not guarantee at all that your children will be godly. We must not make that mistake. The Bible is full of examples of excellent, faithful, godly parents 
who had wicked children. But the normal pattern is that where parents genuinely love and serve the Lord with faithful devotion, their example is followed by their children and by their children's children. In God's covenant, good is far more influential and far more powerful than evil. And so many of you, the vast majority of you here this evening, are living proof of that. Because you yourself are the next generation in a long line of believers. And you have a rich inheritance of godliness. Parents and grandparents, great-grandparents, who prayed for you, even though they didn't know you, even before you were born, who prayed for your conversion and for blessing upon you, and who labored hard to live consistent Christian lives in front of you. So often in session when we hear, uh, not just young people, uh, older folk as well, when, when we hear people sharing their testimony about how they came to faith, uh, they're almost apologetic when they say, I was brought up in a Christian home um, and I, I, I've always really loved the Lord. And, and you get the sense that they think that that's a little bit feeble, a little bit disappointing, as if it would be far more impressive to be able to come in and say that they lived a, a life of horrible depravity for years and years and then the Lord rescued them. But that's not the case at all. Proverbs 20, verse 7. The righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed are his children after him. And if that was your experience, then you should give thanks to God every day of your life. It is the most wonderful blessing, the richest legacy that any human being can have. And pray that you, for your part, in turn, can pass on the same blessing to the next generation. We all of us need to hear and heed the challenge of this passage. Parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, teachers of children, all of us set an example that is less than perfect to the children of this congregation. And we need to repent of that. We need to listen to this reason that is annexed to the second commandment. We need to seek God's forgiveness, and we need to ask him for his grace to do better. We need to pray, may the children under my care, the children that I influence, may they not suffer because of my folly or my shortcomings. Lord, please be gracious and merciful to them. And in God's grace, we can always make a new beginning. It's always possible to start a new line of descendants, a new generation of godliness that will stretch into the future for thousands of generations and to all eternity. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we stand 
convicted before you of our sins. Those of us who are parents and grandparents, those who are uncles and aunts, those of us who are responsible for teaching and guiding and shaping children in any way, all of us as members of this congregation in the example that we have set to the next generations. In many ways, perhaps unknown to us, things that we are completely oblivious to, we have done damage to the coming generations. We pray, O oh God, that you will forgive us. We thank you that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness for every sin. We thank you, Lord, that this pattern of sin, this downward spiral, is able to be broken by the grace of God. And Lord, we pray particularly for the next generation and the succeeding generations after that. As we see our society in meltdown, as we see uh, your, the consequences of the sins of previous generations now being visited to the third and fourth generation, as people cast off all restraint and all knowledge of you, we pray, O oh God, that you would have mercy upon us. Pray that you would reverse this decline. Pray that you would send revival into our land and into our churches. But we pray first and foremost for ourselves that you will help us to be good examples to the next generations in our words, in our speech, in our attitudes, in our priorities, in our values, in our worship, in all that we are and do. And we pray, O oh God, for those covenant children who are straying at the moment, perhaps because of bad examples that they have seen in the church or in their own family, perhaps because of the stubbornness of their own hearts. But we pray, O oh God, that you would be gracious and merciful. We pray that you would show your steadfast love to thousands of those who love you, and to their children after you. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.